I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all so much for coming. A very warm welcome and a... Miserable night to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you all for coming out to see Mackenzie Walk talk about her new book, Love and Money, Sex and Death, published by Verso. We have Lauren John Joseph in conversation with Mackenzie. Thank you both so much for coming. I've been looking forward to this for ages and it's a real pleasure to have you both here. I'm very excited, as I'm sure everybody else is. Um, our guests will talk for about 45 minutes. There'll be time for questions later. Uh, one of us will have the microphone, so if you want to ask something, just give us a little wink or a nod and we'll get around as many of you as possible before we then go to a less formal situation and Mackenzie will sign some books and we can hang out and have a drink. Thank you for listening to me and please give our guests a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Hello, good evening. Welcome to the LRB um, and to our special guest this evening, Ms. Mackenzie Walk. Um, we're going to be talking about this little lady. Um, this is a rather more glamorous copy. I just got the, the tatty old paperback proof, but you can have it in hardback. And that gives a lot more bang for your buck because you get more of a wallet out of it if you should be forced to crack somebody around the back of the head with it. At a bus swap, stop. Swap flies. That's yes, yeah, so exactly. Yeah. If you're a pacifist, just swap flies. <laughs> if you grew up in Merseyside, you might need to beat somebody to death with it. <laughs> um, so, Mackenzie, um, this is our first time meeting IRL. It's a pleasure. In this physical realm. Yeah. Yes, likewise. We were gossiping away for ages. We nearly didn't make it upstairs. <laughs> somebody came down and said, would you like to go up? And we were like... <laughs> All right. Um, Okay, so my first question to you is that this book is a series of letters to yourself at various times in your life and to other people in your life. Why letters? Yeah, um, I've been fascinated by, uh, and I can barely say the epistolary, uh, but the epistolary form for a long time. And... Uh, I've tried to write in it for a long time as well and failed. Like, I've failed to write this book for many, many years. Uh, and it sort of suddenly came together. And I felt that there was, among other things, a way that you can uh, model in the address that's inside the book a way for the redirects of the book to then interpret it. And I felt like that was useful for writing a trans book uh, because you're always sort of under the cis gaze and so you're, you're writing in a way that models a different way of perceiving us. So that was sort of one of the strands mm -hmm. of how it ended up in, in letter form. And I suppose also you have the you there. So there's the you mm. to whom the letter is addressed and but that you also becomes the reader in a way. Yeah, exactly. And there's sort of like slippage around who's being addressed a little bit. And, and, and it's, it's a form that's sort of a conceit because it's sort of really addressed to the reader. Yes, I suppose because it's so heightened and we know they're not really letters. You're not going to pop them in an envelope. That kind of um, artifice in a way allows for a greater authenticity. I often find that if I read a novel in the third person, it's like Amanda looked at her lovely blonde hair in the mirror, I think. No, she didn't. <laughs> There's no such Amanda. But, but when the artifice is right up there, then you, you kind of go with it and you, there's an immediacy and a, 
and the dreaded authenticity there. You know what I mean? Which uh, I certainly appreciate. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I trust the third person. Yeah, I don't. And it, that's also a thing about transness because we're written about in the third mm -hmm. person. Other people write about us like we're objects. Uh, so I was a little wary of that. And I've, I've written in the first person, but it, it really does become all about oneself. And I'm sort of vain enough as it is. Yeah. You know, the second was like a compromise for me. Don't encourage her. No. Um, so I suppose then that leads me on to another question when you're saying uh, uh, choosing your person and being written about in the third person, particularly maybe this political moment. Um, you've said in the past that the self is a fiction. I found that a very useful thought to hang on to when talking about my own work when people have said, is it memoir? Is it autofiction? Is it a novel? Are you writing about yourself? I had recourse to that thought. Yeah. The self is a fiction. Don't yeah. ask me. Um, and you've also said in this book that trends is a better fiction. So I suppose um, I would like to talk about how useful are these fictions and to what ends can we embody them? I mean, when I read your book, it, like the way I felt about is it memoir, is it novel, is it autofiction, is yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like what I liked about it is it's all of those things. Uh, and it's not making uh, claims about that. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of, there, there is a standard trans memoir form. And uh, I read a lot of those books and it's all about, I lived this false life and then I became my true self. And it's like, I don't believe them. Like, I don't believe it. But on the other hand, I trust trans people. So what's, how do you split the difference? And it's like, I think, honey, what you actually did is created a better fiction. Like the, you found a way that the artifice of selfhood is livable uh, and the old one wasn't. So it's a sort of slightly different perspective than, uh, than going from false to true being, you know, because, uh, you know, if, if I'm not a huge fan of psychoanalysis, but if it does tell us one thing, it's that we really don't know ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like we don't. Like we're always, it's always opaque to ourselves. So how do you write about how you got made sort of as a slightly different project to like the, it says memoir because Leo made me put it on the cover, <laughs> but it's sort of not, you know, it's sort of about more how selves get made. Yes, it's much more a process. It, it's a, it's an, at an objective remove that you wouldn't usually expect from a memoir, I would say. Um, so... I guess you've been doing a bunch of little chit-chats with um, glamorous people all around the world to talk about this book. As one does. Um, and, um, and you're off to Italy soon to talk about raving, because um, that's coming out in Italian, so you can read both copies at once and finally get that GCSE. Um, <laughs> and, but I wanted to know, with all of this, you know, with, under the scrutinising gaze of the world's press, what are the, the questions you always get asked? I always get asked the same three questions. I presume that people always, people who haven't done any, their homework maybe ask you the same questions. Uh, I actually have like a memory disability where I like my short term to long term memory thing doesn't work. Yes. So they probably do and I haven't, I've forgotten <laughs> already like what Lucky. they... What they sort of are, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what the standard questions are. I've just done different things. Like mm -hmm. I just do very different sorts of writing every three to five years. So oh. I think it's changed over the years so people don't quite know how to pin me down. And no one can keep up with you. Um, well, I try to be elusive. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as I mentioned when we were downstairs, uh, I'm, I'm prone to like gender dysphoria, right? No brainer. So hence dissociation and mania. And I... Managed to make that combination of mental illnesses like writing. It turned into writing, you know. Making it work for you. Yeah, yeah. So it's make your mental illness work for you. Yes. Whatever, whatever sort of set of what things you've got going What a great idea for a podcast. On. Huh? What a great idea for a podcast. Right? Yeah, let's do it. We'll make millions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's how we'll make a million dollars. Um, so I very much understand how you might take what you've been given and even if it's not the best set of ingredients, you still make a marvellous salad out of it. Um, so I would like to know <laughs> some of the other ingredients in the salad that is your life and work. Um, I was interested by you talking about your mother's library. You said that your father had given away some of your favourite hardbacks as a kid. Mm. 
which reminded me a little bit of I Capture the Castle, where they keep having to sell the books to pay the rent. <laughs> um, but what was left was your mother's books. Mm. So would you like to tell us about your mother's library, anything you remember specifically, and maybe a volume that had an, an impact, a lasting impact? Yeah, my mother died when I was six, and uh, that's the sort of uh, traumatic kernel of the book, and the first two letters out of her. Uh, so the, the book is Letters to Mothers, Lovers, and Others, and, and it's three in each section, and the first section is two letters to my mother because it didn't all fit in one, and one to my sister who raised me a lot. I was raised by teenagers, as you can obviously tell. Uh, and uh, I felt like I didn't... Uh, get to know her before she passed and I feel like um, one way I kind of got to absorb who she might have been was through her taste in literature which was uh, a lot of like penguin paperbacks you know like I'm, I'm from the colonies you know we learned about British culture when it made the penguin paperback and they would ship them out to the rest of the world so it was sort of like your run of um, English European and American modernism you know uh, so I'm reading, you know, her copy of Great Gatsby and there's, you know, the, remember the orange covers that Penguins used oh, to yes. have? Yes. Uh, the classic orange covers, you know, or I'm going to blank on all the names, but I've got to even read Wyndham Lewis for fuck's sake, you know, in, in Penguin, I think. Uh, so, yeah, I think I was sort of trying to look for her through, through reading and then, then through writing. Mm -hmm. I remember my mother having an awful lot of sort of Early 80s softcore pornography <laughs> and fantasy fiction novels like The Sword of Shannara. And so if you have been made by modernism and being raised by teenagers, clearly I have been made by softcore pornography <laughs> and fantasy fiction. So thanks, totally Mom. makes sense. <laughs> and um, on, the, uh, on riffing on moms, another great name for a podcast, riffing on moms. Um, you have spoken about your mother in this book, your mother who passed and speak about her quite tenderly. And as you say, she's the, the kernel that runs through this book. Um, you've also said that using the name Mackenzie was a way to maybe write to your mother or to answer a postcard your mother sent to you. And using the name Mackenzie um, would allow her to know that it was you who was writing, um, which is in a in a couple of spiritual traditions. Um, I'm a Catholic and they always say in heaven you're known by the name you are baptized with, which is why I made mine my surname. So <laughs> there's no mix up, it's speedy boarding in heaven. Yeah. Um, I love that. So, yeah. But also you mentioned having maybe seen your mother's ghost. Mm. So one tends to think of you as, you know, a modern gal, like a a Marxist, a materialist. Both of these point to something different, to maybe not a purely material understanding of the world, not a purely atheist understanding of the world. So what's your, like, spiritual landscape? Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> and, and seeing it goes was, uh, in fact, it's happened to me twice, but that is a very strange experience for, mm -hmm. uh, for a materialist. Where was the second ghost? Uh, you know, I was living in a share apartment in Albany and, and I, and I was, thought I'd perceive somebody in the apartment and, and the roommate said, oh yeah, that was Mrs. Robinson. And I'm like, what? And they, yeah, yeah, she, she died, you know, 40 years ago. This used to live here. From the Simon and Garfunkel yeah. song? Well, no, no, but it's the same name. But, uh, but I, I would like to think it was Anne Bancroft, really. <laughs> <laughs> Is Anne Bancroft alive? I don't know. Someone can Google that one. Yes. Give us an answer. Is she alive or is she haunting Mackenzie's friends' apartment? Yeah, yeah. Or both. Work slowed down. She's got to, you know, hire herself out as a spook about the houses. Um, Anne Bancroft, where are you? Um, mothers, more questions about mothers um, in that you have written about your mother, as I just said, but not about your children, you've said. You don't really like to mm. write about your children. Is that an arrangement you have with them? Is it something that's just too sensitive to write about? Or do you believe that the children should do the writing in the grand tradition of Christina Crawford, etc.? <laughs> um, both um, my co-parent and I are kind of like public people mm. um, and also people who like overshare. And I think the kids figured that out early and are kind of like drawing boundaries on how much they're part of that. Mm -hmm. and, and I just always 
that was how I wanted to operate anyway. Like yes. their lives are their story. They're not my story to yes, tell. Yes. Um, and I've sort of said to them, like, you know, look, you're not in any of the books because you're too important to be in it. You know, like I don't, I don't want them to feel like they're less important than the things, the people that I do write. Yes. About. So that we've had to have that conversation. Yeah. No, I really, I really feel that. Um, and, and, you know, also as a person who's trans, who's a parent, it just really has to be off limits, mm -hmm. you know. Yes. I um, often have felt in my own work that I've never written any kind of like T for T content. And I've been trying to figure out why is that? Am I secretly ashamed? I don't think that's the case, but maybe it is kind of too precious and you don't mm. really want to hand that over. Yeah, well, it's just for us. Yeah. Something's just for us. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, probably I will hand that over, but, it, but not yet. Um, yeah. But it's a lovely way of thinking about that. The things that you don't write about is also a way of protecting them, I suppose. A little bit, yeah. I mean, the book's actually dedicated to them. You know, it's like it's a book that's for them rather than about them. And um, I guess they'll inherit the copyright. <laughs> <laughs> so when it finally does become the slanderous blockbuster with Faye Dunaway as you, then... Um, they'll be yeah. my executor. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll be rolling in it. Mm. Um, what, wait, Faye Dunaway's going to play me? Yeah, absolutely, like in Mommy Dearest. All right, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think she'd be a great you. <laughs> Apparently she's a total nightmare. I had a friend who... Um, oh, so, so you're saying... <laughs> <laughs> On screen, she's unbeatable, off screen. <laughs> I had a friend who worked with her and apparently she was just always like five hours late for everything and there was one scene they had to do. They were filming in England. They had this big whacking Tudor house. They had to film it. They had one night. It was 500 grand for the night. She had to be there on time. And the director begged her like, please, Miss Dunaway, just one night, can we just, we just need you there at midnight. And that night she arrived at like midnight 02, <laughs> done, ready to go. And the director said, Miss Dunaway, thank you so much. You don't know what this means. And kissed her on both cheeks. And she said, you idiot, you ruined my makeup and left. <laughs> so that's what we're expecting from the movie adaptation. Okay. Um, other influences I'd like to talk about in the salad that is your life and work, music. Mm. Obviously, you've written about parties and music and prints. Um, are there any surprising musical influences that you haven't mentioned? Uh, are you... Like a really big Dolly Parton fan, perhaps? Actually, I don't really quite understand country music. No. Um, my girlfriend grew up on country music, so I've been trying to figure it out mm. a little bit, you know. Uh, so there's, there's framing stories about Little Richard, who um, one legend is that Little Richard's um, rediscovery of Christianity happened in my hometown, which is Newcastle, New South Wales, the other Newcastle. Um, and my stepmother was at the time married to a record executive and she met him like and she used to tell these little richard stories you know <laughs> uh and little richard was also kind of trans femme in an uncategorizable mm. way and used to perform as princess lavon you know um so little richard is one anchor and it does end with prince who is kind of a straight guy who is like every gender imaginable at the same time you know so it's sort of framed a little bit around to musical events and it, and I've learned more about writing from jazz than from literature in a way mm -hmm. and and so learning what a phrase is or how to write a sentence I got from Miles Davis so like that sort of gesture too in the book and at some point I got interested in techno as like jazz with different machines in a way um, so between raving and this one is thinking through those Music is giving you different ideas about form and how you put things together. Beautiful. I'm sad that there was no Dolly Parton scene, though. I did like <laughs> I did like your rememberings of um, seeing the Diamonds and Poles World Tour. Yeah, yeah, it was a good show. Although it was with um, the boyfriend that my other book, Reverse Cowgirl, is partly about, and that didn't end well. But you know, oh. sweet. Yeah. Apparently Kylie Minogue also saw that tour. Maybe you were both in the audience at the same time. Oh, my God, point. I love Kylie, so I hope, well, I hope that was the case. I would like to know. <laughs> yeah, that's the collab that we've missed. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I'm so here for that. I'm so here for that. Um, if she can work with Nick Cave, she can work with me. Yes. <laughs> she's, she's boundless. <laughs> so we've got you, we've got Kylie, we've got Kate Blanchett and Margot Robbie. What is it about Australian women that makes them so culturally commanding? 
<laughs> there is a thing about Australian women, and yeah, I, I kind of modelled my own transition on them rather than the American women around me mm -hmm. in a way, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like having to deal with Australian men. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've seen both sides of that. I sympathise, you know. Wow. I, yeah, I can, I, someone, if anyone's got the hookup with Kylie, just give her a tweet, say, <laughs> Kenzie's ready. Can you rap? I imagine you can rap. No. You could have no, like a, like a Zero musical ability no. of any kind. Well, we'll work on that. Right. Um, so, what else did I wonder? I've got so many questions to ask you. I was terrified on the way here in case Mackenzie was maybe taciturn. And I would ask a question and Mackenzie would say, no. <laughs> and, um... 1979. <laughs> and then you just have to put up with me and all my Faye Dunaway stories, apropos of nothing. Um, so, on page 85, you talk about being a modern, and there's a nice little couple of lines there, where you say, I was the kind that lived in the future. I was modern. There was a better world to build for generations to come. Is that still the case? No. It seems like a failed project. Mm. And... Um... You know, as as a um, uh, you know, growing up in a settler colonial society outside any organised religion, um, as uh, you know, just random what what an Australian you know sort of slang you call skip you know like random white people like Skippy or Skips. Uh, so like, what's culture? What do you hang on to? And uh, like, modernism as a tradition was the one that I felt. Um, belonged to me and I'm from a steel and coal town, mining town so like there's that industrial version of the modern ethos was just all around me uh, and particularly the version of that, the labour movement mm -hmm. which was strong in my hometown um, was, you know so yeah, that's, those were the sort of cultural coordinates that, that raised me but at some point you sort of see the wheels fall off that almost literally and so like, I think that's sort of one of the little themes of the book is, like, what, what do you do as, as someone raised modern with a world where those coordinates don't kind of work the same way, that we have to think about, you know, past and present differently, uh, where um, political projects are more reparative than utopian. Yeah, so that, that's sort of one of the... It's a sort of a personal story of, of reckoning with that is one of the, the layers to it. And also the, um, <clears throat> you, the, you're falling out of love maybe with the Soviet Union and communism as we understood it. There's a moment... Ne never the Soviet Union because the uh, Australian Communist Party broke with Moscow in 1968. Uh, and, but it was sort of a little bit... And it, then it became a very new left kind of mm -hmm. formation. But I really loved the... Um, I, I was middle class by upbringing, but the meeting uh, like working class people through the party um, shaped me in a lot of ways. Uh, and some of them had stayed with the party even though it had split with the Soviet-aligned part. This is probably ancient history and makes no sense to millennials, you know. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, that, was, that wasn't really the thing. But there was, I don't know, I feel like a culture of mourning for a version of uh, communist culture that wasn't really possible anymore. Um, but... Uh, I inherited from the Conrads what I feel is like solidarity uh, with people in struggle everywhere, including Palestine, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I think, I think I wanted to stay true to that emotionally, even though intellectually it's had to be completely rethought as a project. There's a moment in The Golden Notebook um, with Doris Lessing's characters where they're all kind of forced to accept the reality of <clears throat> how communism had manifested in the Soviet Union. And at some point they just can't hold on and there's, they have this sort of crisis of meaning, I suppose. And now even people who didn't grow up in the Communist Party or, um, or in a way came to political subjectivity after the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, <clears throat> we've all gone through sort of reckonings now about what it means to be like, to live in a Western liberal democracy. What does the EU mean? And so now it seems like now we have truly, we've, all of those old stories have fallen to pieces and you've kind of seen the death of modernism 
and that branch of communism. And do you have any advice for us, like as we're just watching everything that we thought, maybe that's our way out, just, just explode one after the other? I'm a little uh, wary of easy language, and, but that's where uh, modernism as an aesthetic tradition uh, comes to our aid because one of the things it was about was understanding how language works and make it new, you know, like find different things that language can do. So I'm interested in my own writing, but then other writers who are doing that, who are sort of looking for how do you, it doesn't have to be uh, as avant-garde a project as Finnegan's Wake, although mm-hmm. there's things to learn from that, obviously, but how do you sort of tweak language so that it actually touches the present moment, actually finds the contours of the material and emotional terrain, you know? So I, so I sort of, the one thing I'm still holding on to is that language has got that role. Uh, if if only a minor one in helping us navigate a situation. Or maybe not even so minor, certainly it's such a hot button issue, things about um, how we use language now, whether that's around gender or other forms of uh, uh, expression of identity that has taken such a central role in the current mm. culture war, which maybe points to the fact that that kind of modernist project of tilting language five degrees is still a, a useful strategy. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, surreal to be like one of the uh, fantasy objects of uh, a public debate uh, that's not, you know. Uh, that's a repetition of a set of figures uh, when, like, actual uh, transcultural production and people who then engage with it just doing interesting shit about gender and figuring it out and... Uh, and then meanwhile, there's this little like cycle of repetition of the same cliche, like mm. going round and round sort of over there somewhere, but we've just ignored that now. It's kind of like, it's like some weird little cult that's going on. Yes. Like Rosicrucians or something. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. it's, it is the, the, the funniest thing. I had the misfortune to pick up a copy of a book called Woke, which is a sort of like <laughs> satire on like a woke culture. And it's written from the point of view of someone who's very woke. And um, they were, this fictional character who was criticized who was supposed to stand in for woke culture was saying things like um of course we know there's no difference between a man and a woman um and they shouldn't be separate uh, except for in mosques because there it's empowering and not only like <laughs> is that just the lamest joke of all time but i don't know if trans people are actually saying the things that we're oh, apparently no, saying they don't actually say this stuff so they, like, you know <laughs> occasionally you are asked the question by somebody who's maybe um not trans and the question is so baffling to you. It's like, right? Yeah. What is like? What you might ask me, like, do you have a recipe for roast chicken? I'm like, <laughs> no, I, I don't know what those people are up to. Do you think I follow them on Twitter? Um, do you have a favorite meme? Ah, oh, yeah. You gave me a heads up. You're going to ask that, and I didn't get around to thinking of a good answer. Damn. Oh, I do. Yeah, ah. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was actually going to put it in the book, but it would involve restaging the photograph at the yes. core of it. Uh, and it's, um, it's the feminism meme, yes. which was uh, uh, you see someone from the back holding up the sickle and it's crossed with the magic wand, right? And, and I was like, yeah, I love that. And um, so the word uh, feminism has mm-hmm. worked its way into both yes. these books. And I meant to restage the pictures so I could actually sort of stick it in there, but, you know, I didn't get around to it. But that's for the reaping. That's, that's my favourite meme, yeah. Because it's like the, the sickle for necessity uh, and the, the magic wand for pleasure, you know, like that's what you want. Yeah? Oh, it's you that want... magic wand. Yeah. I thought you meant like the magic wand on the Photoshop application for no, retouching. No, 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 the vibrating Right, one, okay, you know, for, sure. For, for certain parts. Yeah. You know, that one, yeah. I'm particularly fond of that meme, which is Hillary Clinton and Mary J. Blige sat next to each other looking very serious. And Mary J. Blige is saying, Secretary Clinton, can you tell us what your government intends to do about the epidemic of hateration and holleration in this dancery? <laughs> and I have loved that for years. Sometimes I just Google it. <laughs> just if I'm it's feeling... still there. <laughs> yes, it's still there, just if I'm feeling low. Um, do you read your reviews? I have to admit, yes, yes. Uh, I've had to train myself to not take 
the good ones seriously. Mm. So then I don't have to take the bad ones seriously. Yes. You just clip out the sentence that reads good and put it on Twitter and Instagram. Absolutely. And the back cover of the next one and you move on. <laughs> or edit it even. You know. You just get look. a flaming pile of trash and flaming. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. You see, you see some editing. Uh, one, one word sort of blurbs and you sort of wonder, hmm. Yes. What was the rest of that sentence? Yeah. Yes. I did an event in January and <laughs> my friend Barry, who was interviewing me, had um, very thoughtfully gone and found some one-star Goodread reviews. <laughs> and they were very entertaining. Mainly things like, there's so much sex in this book. Oh, it's very rude. Um, it's like, Is that a criticism? Or like, I, I did spend an evening reading all of my Goodreads reviews, yeah. I have to confess, yeah. How did that make you feel? Mixed emotions, some highs and some lows. Uh, but I was sort of looking for patterns and seeing which books people particularly liked and if there was any... I didn't learn a whole lot from it, yes. but I thought I might get some, you know, get some feedback. That's such a great way to think of that as a resource. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So make it work for you. It's, it's data. Yeah. Uh, so we've asked about that. I, was, I had a sort of order and then we skipped about just in the moment. Something earlier you said... Something you, something you said earlier... Um, appealed to me. You said you'd failed to write this book or failed to use this form before. Any other literary failures or anything else that's tucked away in your desk drawer? Oh, God. I've, I'm sort of putting an archive together mm -hmm. to see if I can sell it to a university, you know, right. uh, to, to a library. Uh, and, and there's a whole folder of failed projects and there's dozens of them, you know. Because I mentioned the mania thing, right? Yeah. So, and with that comes this sort of megalomania of, I've got this grand idea. And then you start furiously making notes and doing chapter outlines and stuff. And then you crash and you go, oh, my God, that was just nonsense. Yeah. But then you sell it to a library. <laughs> <laughs> what a great scam. Yeah. yeah all, all sort of the failed books will be in there along with the, the ones that, I'm not going to say successful, but the ones that got published. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So many, many, yeah, false starts and... I'm, I'm someone who, who's, you know, like I'm, first drafts come very easy and I work, I rework and rework. Mm -hmm. So there's always stuff getting produced, but then a lot of it, you just, you know, yes. goes in a folder and you never look at it again. I took a class with Sheila Hetty and she said for her, they're very slim volumes. Mm. She writes something like 350,000 words and then she publishes 45. Um, it's a method. It, you then have to get good at editing. Yes, I suppose it also helps to be independently wealthy, <laughs> um, which, which I'm not yeah. so much. <laughs> so that it's, but it's interesting because you do have to create masses and masses of stuff. Also, I think Donna Tartt was talking about how she would spend six months at a time writing something and say, hmm, has it really worked? Back to the drawing board, which might be why those books take 10 years. But it is, it's a process, isn't it? You, have to generate so much more and nothing is ever I don't think I don't feel personal anyway nothing's ever wasted because yeah. you fumble around in the darkness for a while and then maybe you strike at one idea or one phrase I, I'm a, this is the only advice I have for writers is practice the instrument mm. and the instrument's the keyboard of your laptop you know like musicians practice yeah like if you play the saxophone you just play it all the time and things come out of that so I practice you know I'm on the keyboard working mm -hmm. um, but practice isn't wasted uh, so when it's flowing, I can get it down, you know, and it does flow like jazz on a good day. Um, it sort of comes out like, I don't know, industrial noise on some other days, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's all, it, writing's all processed to me. Do, and do you have a, <clears throat> a process then, like maybe how you handle the bad days? If it's jazz on a good day, do you have bad days where you think, I can't generate anything today, I'll have to, I don't know, water my geraniums or are those the days you decide to edit or are those the days you decide to read or do you just yeah suffer? you know like you just work the problem in all mm. the different ways that you have available so if the first draft's not coming there's a second draft of something else that's around somewhere uh or read a book or go for a walk you know 
um, like the the sort of larger shape of projects, like they come when you're doing nothing at mm -hmm. all. So you have to get good at doing absolutely nothing and being really completely doing relaxed. Nothing. Long showers and hand jobs, mm -hmm. you know, like just to get that relaxed. That's relax the next and he kind of like, oh, and then, but that's literally, then I'm like, oh, it's nine chapters in groups of three. And yeah, that's, yeah. I absolutely hate showers. I yeah. cannot stand them, huh. except for when I'm stuck on something and then I'll just go and get a shower for like a Yes, I find showers so excruciatingly oh. boring. Oh, like, well, yeah. What am I supposed to do in here? Just get wet and then what? Get dry. Think about in your next book. <laughs> but yes, when I'm stuck with something, then I'm like, oh, fuck this, I'll take a shower. Yeah. Um, yeah, so because it is, you know, like Gertrude Stein had said, it's when you you turn off, and that's when yeah it all comes to the forefront. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you can, it's not an algebra problem. You can't just poke at it till it surrenders. <sighs> that's my advice. <laughs> Don't poke at it. Um, <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What else did I want to ask? I suppose page 54, you had spoken about, uh, let's get to 54. One theory popular at the time was that the cultural superstructures had some autonomy from the capitalist economic base. As cultural workers in the superstructures, we could combine theory and practice to make a different kind of media as the means to underdo, undo the dominant ideologies from within. Um, so yes, you're talking about there how art or culture can dismantle power structures, which made me think kind of on a... Gramsci kind of tip, like if culture itself in a way is creating and upholding the values that crush us, to what extent can culture actually undo that? Do you think you were being a little naive there or is it a boundless optimism and you really do believe that? It seems especially interesting right now at the centre of a sort of like Nepo baby debate, which has come back to the fore, yeah. but also thinking about one of the failures of the uh, internet revolution, how the internet was supposed to democratize culture. You could upload everything, you could download everything, you'd get the best stuff because it was unmediated. And what seems to have happened is that like four companies have ever greater power mm. and the gatekeepers are even stricter. So yeah, can culture undo those superstructures? Uh, short answer, no. Uh, but we gave it, you know, a good try. I mean, we really worked at that, you know. Like, I'm from the broadcast era, you know, like media used to have a different structure and the structure of media shapes the whole of society, culture, politics to some extent. Like, that's a perspective on it. Uh, and it used to seem that uh, culture was a superstructure over an economic base and then whatever is this capitalism or something worse is the title of another book. But one thing it did was figure out how to turn all of that into its own industry that and, and sort of extract value out directly out of culture itself. So, it you know, the superstructure got ingested into a different kind of political economy of information uh, where you need sort of different tactics. And the raving book's partly about the tactic of hiding. You know, it's like let's just be like off the radar for the eight hours of the party that we didn't tell too many people about. And by the way, no cell phone photos, mm -hmm. you know, keep that shit in your pocket. So we're physically present with each other. So, yeah, like what tactics are now viable uh, differs. And, you know, someone who teaches, you know, media and cultural studies, it's like, yeah, you got to march everybody through, you know, Gramsci and Nadorno and all that, but it's not that era, like the actual structure of... Uh, the political economy of culture has changed. So you sort of need slightly different language concepts, 
Um, so I teach less um, Adorno and the cultural industries, but the stuff Pasolini was writing in the 60s about uh, how neo-capitalism produced subjects the same way it produced objects and one would consume the other. It's like sort of bang on, you know, so I teach a bit of that instead because it seems to be he sort of got where we were going. Yeah, I love Pasolini and he's right. really sort of come back into the fore yeah. very recently as a, like a profound thinker beyond just the movies. Yeah, yeah, he was sort of both a gay, a Marxist and some sort of uh, inverted Catholic all yes, at the same time. You know? Absolutely, like, yeah. which is... The, Everything. Is, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating combination. Yeah. I always think of him projecting the gospel according to Matthew onto himself. Yeah. Again, subject, object created by, yeah. by the same forces. And how at the time the movie was condemned and now the Pope says it's the best film ever made about the life of Christ. Uh, he's, all think, true. Very, yes. And it's also a film about the revolution. Yeah, it's, yeah. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great thinker. Mm. I suppose what you're talking about then maybe disappearing for eight hours, not using your cell phone, it's kind of like micro-dosing the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> I often think about how... We, we don't microdose. dose <laughs> <laughs> For eight hours, it's hardcore. <laughs> Big doses of the revolution. I'm, I'm mid. I'm mid. <laughs> I was also thinking about uh, the much-parodied uh, Gen Z slang, etc., um, how that is constantly changing as a way, I suppose, maybe not consciously, of avoiding that kind of scrutiny. And it very quickly goes from being something that seven, uh, 14 year olds on the Wirral are saying to being, you know, on like a live, love, laugh slogan. So mm -hmm. that happens very quickly, but there is a brief period of time of, of autonomy there. In yeah. language. I mean, subcultures have always looked for a language that helps you evade mm -hmm. uh, the gaze, you know, that, that helps you just sort of say something and, and hide a different meaning for somebody else inside it. I didn't get very far, but one little project I almost did uh, during the lockdown was learning Polari. Oh, yes. <laughs> Can't say a single word now, but it's like, oh, yeah, there, mm. there was this whole other language for my ancestors, you know. Yeah, very much so. And uh, that also weirdly entered the the wider cultural lexicon. Yeah, yeah. That uh, you would have BBC radio shows. Yeah, Kenneth Williams would yeah. do it on air. And so presumably it's over at that point. Yes. Yeah. But lingers enough because I guess media wasn't moving so quickly. So yeah. everything didn't burn through its lifespan in mm. seven days. Are you giving me a nod there about time or anything? Okay, great. Mm. I have no concept of time. You other than it is flying. Sort of move on, yeah? Yeah. Um, so, uh, 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 do you have a party trick? <laughs> um, no, I don't think I do. No, maybe I should, like, get one. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah, what's yours? What's your party trick? Um, do I, well, I learned from being on photo shoots that I can continue a conversation while somebody's doing my lipstick. <laughs> it's not very useful. It's a good bit, though. Yeah, in, certain, in certain circumstances, you can, like, it's order lunch, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or say you'll be just a little longer whilst someone's doing lipstick. No, don't have a party trick. Well, the night is young. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so bad books. How do you feel about bad books? Are you the kind of reader who, if you get given a book or you pick up a book and it's god awful, do you feel obliged to read all the way through? Or do you say, you know, forget this? Uh, I don't finish a lot of books and, um, my girlfriend is a bookseller, so we get like inundated with mm. arcs, you know, the events review copies and a lot of it is things like commercial fiction and sometimes they get, don't get past the back cover, but I like to know, I like to know what's going on. So I'm just like, oh, sure, sure. Okay, hell, this is what this is what this publisher's doing now. Yes. They're doing a bit of that. But every now and then, if you're sort of like looking at this, you go, oh, this one's got something going on. How did this one get through the sort of conglomerate publishing model that it's here? Like every now and then some, something will surprise you. And they'll probably almost finish it. But only almost. Only all. I finished your book. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's going on the back of the next one. I finished it. <laughs> Actually, that, that really would be an awesome blur. I finished this book. <laughs> it's very liberating not to finish books. I always felt like yeah. I absolutely had to until maybe two years ago and there was a book that was on the Booker Prize 
Um, and several people forced it on me and it was so bad. But I just kept going back to it. Like I felt so guilty. <laughs> I was like, someone's really tried to write a book and they've come up with this. Um, but God loved them, they tried. And I hated it so much, I had to leave it on a train because I just kept going back to it. And since then I feel I'm like, I don't have to finish a book. Nope. No. If I, I, don't want I, to. I mostly write short books, so it's yeah. um, just helping with that, you know. Yes. Just make it make it quicker yeah, to get there's through. There's something in brevity, yeah. for sure. Um, what are you reading at the moment then? Ah, good question. I didn't bring it with me. Uh, uh, so I am reading, is it Isabel Widener? Oh Widener? yes. The, the yeah, I've got the new one. The new one thinking of does social mobility. Yes, yeah. Kate. Yeah. Corey. Corey. Ooh, Corey some something. Corey. IW fans and mouths. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, haven't read yeah, it yet, but yeah, I do love yeah. their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of got me in the first like 10 pages, yeah. but that's as far as I got. And I will get further with that one. Yeah. <laughs> that's two books you're going to finish. <laughs> um, and leading on, what are you working on next? It's my year of no new projects. Uh, so, yeah, I actually don't know. Um, I'm meeting my publisher tomorrow. Well, we'll have a, a very open conversation about things that might happen. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying, I've sort of gone from one thing to another for a long time and I wanted to just draw breath for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and also think about whether I should just stop, you know, like that could happen. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Stop writing? Or... Yeah, well, stop publishing things in book form, you know. Oh, and become a DJ? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I got asked that about the raving book a lot and it's like, never. You've got to know your limitations. You know, we're not doing that. Uh, but, you know, I have a column and I'm asked to do occasional pieces and all that. Um, but the books are the real thing. Um, and at some point it's like, how many more do I have in me? Mm -hmm. And what else would I actually be doing with my life? My, my life improved so much when I came out. But do I, do I even need to still be doing this? Oh. It's sort of one of those questions a little bit, you know. Well, I hope that you do. Um, we'll see. And, and speaking of, do you, want to, do you want to read some of it to us? Because we were supposed to do that at the top. And yeah, yes, Sue's got ADHD. So let's do it for now. a couple of pages or should we go, all right, yeah. I'm just looking at our handler. Uh, I'm just going to start. Uh, there's a letter to myself at age 20 is the framing device. And it ends with a letter to myself at age 40. Because uh, no one tells you anything when you're 40 about how to do anything, you know. Uh, so I, cause I'm 60 now, so I wrote back. Uh, and I'll start with the first letter to my mother. Um, just, I'll just read a little bit of it. To Joyce. When asked why I write all the time, I never know what to say. I'm back home in Australia on a flying visit from New York. Oh, I want to write to you of the colour of the leaves, the bird song, all we once shared, all tugging at senses, bringing me back to our past, all becoming ne nebulous, fantastic as the years in New York pile on. My sister takes me to the storage unit that holds some lost chunk of my Australian and pre-transition life. There's the metal shelves I spent two days assembling. There's the double rows of books, slightly random, abandoned and sad. I'm sorting through it all for the most personal things that I might still care about. There's the old metal tin, in it letters from former lovers. I leaf through them, glance at the handwriting. I know they all complain of the same thing. That the writer cannot reach me, that I remain hidden from them. I was hidden from myself. It gives me no satisfaction to know that now. Among the letters, a postcard, a picture of an institutional building. Somehow I know it's a hospital. I turn the card over. It's your handwriting, Mom. You're writing to me from this hospital, the last place you were ever to be. I smash cut into a memory of visiting you there. I'm with my father, your husband, on the long drive from Newcastle down the old Pacific Highway to Sydney. I'm six years old. The ride bores me. We pass the exit sign for Crow's Nest. Funny, funny name for a place, I say. Dad asked me to be quiet. He's trying not to get lost. I brought something to show you in the hospital, a paper cone coloured in with pencils. There's a flat paper head attached. She's a princess. Maybe I made her at Sunday school. We're not a religious family. It felt like I was sent across the road to the Baptist Sunday school to get me out of the house. Give my father and older siblings a break. 
I'm holding my paper princess. I see my colouring is not quite as good as I'd like. The blush colour of her face has a flaw. I missed a bit, but I don't have pencils to fix it. I show you the feeling that remains from this moment long ago is one of disappointment. Your reaction wasn't anything. I can now put myself in your place, but I don't let myself dwell on what you must have felt. To see your youngest child, a little grumpy from the car ride, chattering away as if nothing was happening, while well, knowing that this child might soon be motherless. I'm older now than you were then. I have kids of my own. If I think about this too much, your pain becomes mine almost. There's none of this in your postcard. Its tone is light, written to a child in your loopy hand. The memory from the hospital is one of exactly nine memories I have of you. I asked my sister Sue to tell me a bit about you as I remember so little. My sister says that Joyce Walk was brave and proud and reserved. You didn't let your feelings show. You went out of this life keeping your suffering to yourself. The thing I know best about you is your taste in literature. Your books filled our house. Long after you were gone, I spent a week putting them in alphabetical order. My father gave a brace of your hardbacks away once and I was furious with him, although I didn't know why. I think now that the books were my link to you. I read them to find you. You appreciated literary modernism. I contracted your taste from those yellowing pages. You even had James Joyce's Ulysses, which was banned in Australia for a time. Another of my handful of memories of you, a time you took me to the Cardiff Public Library. We're in the children's section. It was after play school where you took me one morning a week. I liked it there. I liked the two girls I played with, but they never invited me to their special tea party under the slippery dip. One day they did, taste of weak tea in a little cup. It started to rain and we were called inside. I was sad because they didn't get to play their tea party game. Maybe you took me to the library to cheer me up that day. I remember you as a warm presence of a nine ambience, but I don't have an image of you. All I remember of the library is the bright colours of the books in rows, in racks, primary reds, yellows and blues, some exotic looking books in purple and orange. I had to choose just one book, but I wanted them all. Writing is what you gave me, what left traces. You must have given me other things. You loved me. I feel this has to be true. I have no way of knowing other than the evidence of my body, my life, that I can love. Since I lost you, letting myself be loved is harder. I've not loved much of myself either. Becoming a writer filled the solitude left by your leaving. I know that you did not really abandon me. You had cancer. Feelings don't answer to facts or reasons. Sometimes they just make a void around themselves and remain undetected. When I started transition and went on hormones, the past all came back to me, came out of its nothingness, all the loss, all the longing, all the pain, and with it an understanding of this compulsion to write, this refuge in writing. When I'm writing, I'm writing to you. I'm always writing to my mother, to this absence you left in me. And I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, then, I think now we're going to throw the floor open to you, Mackenzie's adoring fans. Um, there is a microphone coming your way. Someone in the front here. Someone here. Uh, thank you. Hi. It's Agata. Thank you for for the invite. It's lovely. It's funny for somebody like me who has been your, like, you know, social media friend and, like, saw your transition life almost, so to speak. <laughs> uh, it's great to see you. But also I want to say about what uh, particularly moved me in this beautiful, beautiful book. I really want to say, uh, you know, it's really wonderful. It's the heterosexual stuff because I happen <laughs> to be straight. So I'm sorry. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're, uh, uh, first of all, the choice of uh, your lovers. I want to ask you why this particular woman because you know because of your background Australian background and then when you sort of intertwine for instance Mu whose story is extremely uh, touching and uh, I don't know I haven't expected how it's going to end as well 
but also um, it's about the sadness of you being i'm sorry if i'm going to if i'm going to use the wrong word a shitty man <laughs> you know the, yeah, the, was, yeah, the shitty yeah. man shitty yeah. man in this not this sense that you were shit to them but uh, that you didn't realize uh, you weren't fully formed to your ready for your transition yet you were sort of searching but you couldn't fulfill your sort of uh, heteronormative role to the women heterosexual women in your life and I felt that particularly resonated with me because of my past relationships whatever so and particularly the, the letter to Kristen is amazing I mean I think it's kind of heart of the book for me I mean I don't know why uh, so the commentaries really um, did the people, of course, those who are alive, still alive, read the letters? Did they comment? How did they feel about this? And whether writing about those often pain painful stories, uh, backstories, of course, with Kristen is especially dense because it's been 20 years uh, and, and children, whether it sort of helped any of you to resolve perhaps certain is issues or emotions, uh, complicated emotions that you had uh, apropos of your relationships and your transition? Yes. So I, I had this previous book called Reverse Cowgirl. It's, among other things, about my three attempts to be a gay man. Uh, I was being told, you know, as a teenager in, in my, you know, hometown that I was some kind of queer and I took it seriously. I just figured I was doing it the wrong way. You know, it's like, oh, so I'm gay. I should do that. And it sort of worked and it didn't work. Um, and, and so then I was dating women, but then I wanted to be them, you know, which is classic trans trope. Um, yeah. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to write about, um, heterosexuality for somebody who sort of left it. Uh, and, and these words are sort of, they're sort of absurd at some point, you know? Um, so yeah, this, the three, uh, the middle section to lovers is to, uh, Moo or Helen who died very young. Um, and who I, I failed to love, and I want to write that story. Uh, like I failed to love her, and she was a hard person to love in some ways, um, but so deserving of it. I got to keep it together about that one. Um, yeah, but and I, I thought I'd maybe I'd have a perspective on um, dating or, or being in love with women as someone who is attempting masculinity uh, that might be interesting to to people. Um, who are heterosexual or whatever. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, the, the people who are alive have read the letters. Um, with one exception, I've always wanted people to, you know, get to, to at least have some input. Um, and my sister redacted one thing, and I was happy to do that in that letter. Um, Kristen read the previous book, Reverse Cowgirl, really closely. Um, this one, things intervene in her life and less so. But, yeah, it was important that people read. Um, and then the, the third one, which is very different quality, is Jenny, who's my partner now. Um, but we just moved in together four months ago after dating for two years. So it's like a completely different version of what it is to love, you know, and it's my first serious post-transition relationship. Anybody else? Or rather, who's next? Hi, Mackenzie. Thank you for coming to London. And thank you for all the writing you do for the trans community as a trans woman. It means a lot. How do we move beyond limiting discussions about dysphoria? Oh, and also, if you have um, any advice going to uh, rave sober, that would be absolutely amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and sort of take the second one first. Um, you know, I'm out as a recreational drug user, which in some ways is harder than being out as a transsexual. Uh, but um, many people in my rape community are sober and it's completely possible to do that. It's a different experience. Uh, I sometimes do that also um, and experience the party in a different way. Uh, and, you know, I'm in a, a mixed sort of community that's part sober and part not and it's sort of respecting how to interact with people what sober people's boundaries are around being around intoxicated people and things like that so it and and the within my little community the the sober people have their own sub community and that's very important to be there for each other and to be able to both in the party and outside of it to have conversations and to support each other 
and to tell the rest of us when we're being inappropriate, you know, which is not often, but that will happen. You know. Yeah, so that's kind of important. Um, yeah, I mean, I've used the word dysphoria tonight, but I don't love it. Um, and I think the project of, um, or a project of transculture is what's an aesthetic language for our process of becoming? Uh, because we're art- many people are artists of their own life, and I encourage everybody to think of themselves as artists of their own life. Um, Oscar Wilde reference, who came up when we were chatting earlier downstairs. Um, but trans people are artists of their own lives, you know, where hardware is involved. Um, and, and how to sort of shift the language into that a little bit. Um, so it's like, yeah, this version of myself doesn't please me and is deeply dissatisfying. I will physically modify it, you know, like a sculpture um, such that it works. And let's, let's talk about it that way. But obviously we have to talk a certain talk to get access to care. It um, doesn't mean we have to believe it. You do not have to believe the things you have to say to get care. You really don't, you know. And that applies to, uh, you know, mental illness, all sorts of things. You don't have to believe the categories, you know. I was very disappointed to find, what do they call it these days? Gender. Gender incongruence. Now you get a bit of paper which says gender incongruence. I was so disappointed. Yeah. I wanted one that said she is a transsexual. Right. And it said gender. I want that word back, thank you. What am I going to do with yeah. that? Yeah. But it's fantastic, yeah. though, you get to say, I would love to come to your party, but my gender incongruence <laughs> <laughs> won't allow me. <laughs> Hope that helps. <laughs> that was a fab question. Thank you. Yeah, sure, please. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, to, I didn't know anything about you, so I'm really curious to find out more after the event by reading your book. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I was really taken by your transition from an unlivable self to a livable one. So I was wondering what happened to the unlivable one. Is he still with you? Oh, uh, we don't have all night. So. <laughs> and... Different trans people have very different relations to that question. So, you know, I could only tell a personal story that really would not apply to other people. Um, I think parts of him are. Uh, like, I don't think I shed all of it or want to. There's parts of it I'd want to have more distance from that I don't. But I have to sort of cop to that and own it. Um, yeah, so I, so I think it's, I think that, you know, one has a complicated relation to that. The other thing is that I have... I do have perspective on it, um, like like the difference creates a perspective on something that previously had seemed like sort of unhappy and unpleasant, but unthinkable because I was in it all the time. Uh, so I think I have, you know, and all trans people, I think you could say have perspective on what they came from, but we, we have different perspectives on what leaving it meant. Well, the, it's up to you, but I'll take okay. one. Yeah, Can you do yeah. one more little one and then we'll yeah. do Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't me having a question. That was just... <laughs> Hi. Um, so I wanted to ask... Um, so I'm 22, and when I first started transitioning, community with cis women was really important to me uh, and really important to my transition. Um, and I guess I've been thinking a lot about the community between trans women and cis women and the kind of solidarity that we have. Um, And I kind of wanted to ask you, like, as someone who did transition um, at an older age, what has your experience been like uh, kind of fostering solidarity with cis women and your experiences of making community with cis women as you transition? Uh it's work, but it's worth doing. And, uh, you know, sometimes we make people uncomfortable. And liberal-minded people don't want to process that. And so it sort of lingers a bit. So, like, you, I have to do the work. Sometimes I choose not to. Uh, sometimes I feel like that's worth doing. Um, and it's sort of like unpacking the pieces of it and you find where the connections are. Um, I, I remember... Um, uh, being with a work colleague before a meeting started, um, after I'd just come out, you know, I was just on hormones and 
Uh, and she's sort of just just chatting away, and we knew each other, so this wasn't inappropriate in a work context, you know. But she's like, "Oh, you're on you're on HRT, so am I." And you're like, "Do your tits hurt? Like mine just really hurt." And they got bigger, like yours. Are. So we just had this conversation about the mechanics of what uh, exogenous hormones do, and it's like, "Yeah, we're, we're going through similar things here." Uh, and in other ways, our experiences are very different, and it's like solidarity is all about. Um, connection because of difference, not in spite of it, you know? So it's like, oh, yeah, like this this we share and so then we have perspective on these things we don't. Um, never gave birth to kids, you know. Uh, she had. So that's a story where I'm the observer on, on the things she has to teach me and so on. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was sort of my experience. And um, it's, it's mixed, you know. I, was, uh, I had a girlfriend who was a gold-star lesbian, uh, for the lockdown year and a bit after that. And I went to a birthday party and half the room wouldn't talk to me, um, you know, but, uh, and of course, five of her exes were there, you know. So, <laughs> so I'm just, well, I'll just be the hottest bitch in the room. And, and pardon my use of the word, but I think we're allowed, I'll bring a little faggotry and, and just be fabulous in a way that's untouchable in that space. Um, but then is also relatable. That, that's actually, you know, there's, there's lesbian culture connects to that sometimes and sometimes not. And when it connects, it's magical. It's great, you know. So, yeah, like you're always looking for the, uh, the ways to be in community. It's not always going to happen. Thank you all so much for your, your questions and your contributions. Thanks for, for coming. It's been extraordinary. Lauren, thank you. Mackenzie, thank you for your generosity. It's been amazing. Thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.